Okay, good morning everybody. It's been a while, huh? So, there's a lot of new faces, and if any of you are like me, as birthdays keep progressing, you kind of need reviews of things. So that's why I thought we'd go over a, a brief review of our whole class, and the purpose, and why we're here. Not just, well, we'll get into that. But first, let's start out with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for today, Lord. Um, thank you that we get to come together and worship you and just just be together as a collective group right now. I ask that you would bless our time together, uh, help us to understand the things that you have for us, and just season our conversations with grace and love. In Christ I pray, amen. Okay, so for the folks that don't know who I am, my name is Sean Kirk, um, member here at, well, not member, but I attend Calvary Chapel. We don't have membership. So what is this class? Um, well, it's adult Sunday school, but we're focusing on something called apologetics. So does anyone not know what apologetics is? Okay, good. I'm glad somebody doesn't. Apologetics is the Greek word. It comes from apologia, and it means to give a verbal defense of. Okay? So what we're going to focus on in this Sunday school, not only today, but for months to come, is how we can prove Christianity to be true. So why is this topic near and dear to my heart? Well, let me share a little bit about myself. I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up in a Christian household by any stretch of any imagination. I actually was a pretty devout atheist. I was the type of guy that I absolutely loved to argue against Christians and destroy their faith, um, especially during my first years of college. It's great fun for me. So I got to a point, I was down at UCLA Med School at the time, I hated Christians and I hated Christianity even worse. So I really, really wanted. Yeah. Well, without the killing part, but yeah, I used to be Paul, <laughs> minus the killing. So, Saul, yes. So I hated Christians and Christianity so much. Finally, I decided, you know what? I'm going to research this stupid thing and I'm going to disprove it once and for all. And, you know, that way I can, I can just be done with it. Because. Christians were just stupid in, in my mind. I'd ask them the questions, and they'd give me the ignoramus answers like, oh, pray about it, or you just have to have faith. I'm like, that is just garbage. Uh, so you're telling me I need to turn off my brain in order to believe in your God, so why would I want to do that, right? So here I am, about two-ish years of really, really studying against Christianity and the Bible, trying to disprove it. What can I do at that point? So all the historical facts and figures, date, archaeological evidence, science in the Bible is all proving to be very, very accurate, alarmingly so. So it's really disturbing my atheistic faith at, at this point. So to cut through, um, you know, run through this a little bit faster, I'm sitting in a class and the professor ends up basically saying, in the beginning, nothing exploded and produced everything. And I'm like, wait, what? Uh, raise my hand. Yes, Mr. Kirk. Did you literally just say in, nothing exploded, produced everything? Yes. Remember, I'm at UCLA at this point in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm paying like $63,000 a year to learn that nothing exploded, produced everything. Okay? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You literally said nothing exploded, produced everything. Yes. Wow. I said, okay, my, my best buddy I went to high school with, he's in the CIA now. And we've gotten to play with some really cool explosives with him being access to the agency. One, I've never seen an explosion produce anything. It messes some stuff up. 
Two, from nothing, nothing comes. This is like an ancient postulate, right? I mean, you don't have to be a PhD in astrophysics to understand that from nothing, nothing comes. This is just basic knowledge. I'm like, I'm out, I'm out. I, I can't deal with this anymore. So then begins my, my transformation into faith, and I, I won't go into the rest of it, but we can visit later on um, afterwards. So what is the plan for this class? Why do we even have apologetics? Or why do we even need to give a defense of the scriptures? Does Jesus need any defending? No, I don't believe that he does. Have we as the Christian church dropped the ball in strengthening our faith and strengthening our young people's faith before they are challenged by opposing ideas? I believe we have. I believe we have significantly, and it really started right around 1963 when Madeline Murray O'Hare effectively got rid of prayer in public schools. And after that, we Christians have kind of stood down and not really been on the offensive. Now, you don't have to be offensive in your conversation with the unbelieving world, but we shouldn't always have to be proving what we know to be an unequivocal 100% truth. However, in this class, we'll be dealing with that. We'll be dealing with common objections that we hear on the street to witness the people because I don't know if you all have watched or looked around the world lately. It's kind of on fire, right? And we need to share Christ with as many people as we possibly can. Now, it's my conviction, my personal conviction, because when I was going through and getting this fancy degree that I don't use for a living, I, I use it here in ministry, of apologetics, I was chastised by the Lord because in my early days, what was I attempting to do? Was I attempting to win an argument or win a soul? Well, it was win an argument, right? That doesn't do any good, guys. Uh, we are in the sole business of winning souls, not winning arguments. However, again, my personal belief and conviction that once we have definite evidence, definite knowledge to back up our faith, I think our witnessing is a lot more bold at that point. Because uh, here's the deal. Have you guys ever witnessed to somebody and then been shaken in your boots because you don't know if what you're saying is the right thing. You don't know what objection is going to come out of their mouth and how you're going to be able to handle that, and you just feel like feeling a fool, right? Well, here's the good news. That person's salvation, that person entering the gates of heaven, doesn't depend on what you say. You don't have that type of authority, and this is where God chased me in my early days. I don't have the authority to save. That's God's deal. I have the authority to preach the gospel and shut up. And then God does the saving. And that is so unbelievably freeing. But then why the apologetics? Why to have all these answers? Because it gives me so much more um, charisma, just gumph, you know, that I can go out and I can talk to somebody. I can talk to the checker at Safeway and I don't care because I know that I know that I know what I'm telling him or her is absolute truth. Whether or not I can accurately defend it. Does that make sense? Okay. So what's the plan for this class? Well, after um, this brief overview, because where we left off on, gosh, was it May, June, maybe, I think? Um, we left off on creation and, and evolution. So we'll be continuing that a bit, but probably not as deep as what we had been doing, um, because we have a mixture of, of ranges here in this class. We have college students that are you know, full-on, like, I want graduate-level studies, we'll get to you, <laughs> okay? Probably not in this class. Praise God, like Dr. Mike, he do, I don't have 
third graders that I'm teaching Hosea too. That's going to be fun for him. <laughs> and then uh, and we have most folks that are in between. And I'm guessing, and please confirm um, my suspicion, that the whole point of what you guys want out of this class is to, number one, strengthen your own faith in Scripture and in, the, and in God and the person of Jesus, and also to be able to answer some of those difficult questions that you've never even been able to answer yourself. And maybe to have those difficult conversations with people whom you love that you know if Christ were to return, they're not coming with you, right? Did I kind of cover it all? Okay, that, that's what I figured. So the definition of the word apologetics, I, I, I got to it a little bit. It's from the Greek, it means to give a verbal defense of. And here's a couple of verses, if you guys take notes, and where this idea is taught in Scripture and why we're supposed to do it. So in Acts 22, verse 1, they say, brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Now, this was before a sermon, okay? Acts 25, 16, I replied to them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any person before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. This is all that same word, that apologia word. 1 Corinthians 9, 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. And of course, the most famous one, 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with meekness and fear or gentleness and respect. You guys might have that translation. So apologetics is the work of convincing people to change their views. And I don't hide it. I believe Christianity is 100% true. I believe that the Bible is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of the living God, and I believe it from cover to cover. I believe 100% of things are true in this book. I believe if I come, in, in cost, uh, excuse me, I come across an idea that somehow contradicts what Scripture says, I'm not changing Scripture to match my idea. I need to change my ideas to match Scripture, and that has happened before. And that's the way it should be for biblical Christianity. And I tell people that I have those conversations with. I'm after to change your views because I don't believe that your view is right. Okay, let me take a little tangent on that one. Um, postmodernism. Anyone have a definition of that one? No? Postmodernism is what we're living in today, where pretty much anything will offend everyone at some time or all the time. depends on who you are. Here's the deal. Okay. When you're dealing with differing views, we have to first, it's gotten a lot more complicated, folks, in, in this day and age. We have to deal with this idea that somehow, when you're talking to somebody that has a different worldview than you, they hold that worldview as their own self-identity, right? So by me differing from their worldview, they're taking it as I am completely disengaging their worth as a human at all. That's not it. That's not even remotely. That is such a false idea that doesn't even make any sense, right? I, I'm just differing with your point of view. I'm not calling you a worthless human being that doesn't deserve to live. So we need to get past that. And we'll get into those tactics as well later on in this class. So Christian apologetics is the branch of Christianity that deals with answering any and all critics who oppose the revelation of God and the Bible. So it can include studying subjects such as um, biblical manuscript transmission. What do I mean by that? How do I know this book that I'm holding in my hand is as accurate as it can be from 
the writers of old. How do I know? Have you guys ever played that game on telephone? And by the time you get to like the seventh person, it's nowhere near the message that you even started with. Don't you think that question should apply to this? It should. And it is answered. We'll get into that one. Um, philosophy, biology, mathematics, evolution, logic. We'll definitely get into logic. But it can also consist of simply giving an answer to a question about who Jesus is or a specific Bible passage, as someone may ask you. Apologetics, like I said, can be defensive and offensive. What do we mean by defensive? Well, people ask us all the time, well, how do you know that God exists? How do you know Jesus is the one true way to heaven? How do you know the Bible is accurate? How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you? Okay, that's the defensive, or we have to give answers for that. But then again, there's also the offensive part. Now, when I say offensive, um, Socrates, the, the Greek philosopher, used this brilliantly. It's called the Socratic method. If someone has doubts about the truth of something, you make them prove their point rather than you defending what they're asking you about. It goes something like this. Well, how, do you, how can you prove that God exists? Well, how can you prove that he doesn't? Let me give you an example on that one. Okay. Let's see here. So where do I fall on that? Me, personally. I fall in something that's called presuppositionalism. Okay? That means evidentiary. That I believe presuppositionally that each individual idea, if taken to its logical conclusion, if you can show someone that where that idea will lead to, they're more than likely, if they are a logic, rational individual, going to change that view if they can follow the train of logic. That's what presuppositionalism means. Or taking people's beliefs and ideas and pushing them toward their absolute highest beliefs or aspirations. This isn't a very important thing, like with atheism. So if you try to push atheism to its logical conclusion, it lends to a rather uh, grim, bleak, meaningless universe. Okay, let's flesh that out for a bit. What do I mean by that? Okay, what's the first premise of atheism? There is no God. So what does that mean? Let's back that up a bit. Okay, there is no God, so let's go a little further. So what about creation? And that means there's no personal creator, okay? So again, let's keep backing that up a bit. That gives two plausible um, definitions of creation. Either it was always here or it came out of nothing. We'll get into those two later on, but let's keep backing this up. When we back it up to its root of atheism, it means that we are here for literally no rhyme or reason or purpose whatsoever. Okay? Now let's fast forward to today's. Let's talk about some things that are happening in the world right now, and if atheism were true on that, that we are here for no rhyme, reason, or purpose. How about all the Confederate statues that are being torn down because they're racist monuments? You know what my answer to that is? If atheism was true, who cares? Why is it wrong to own another human being? If your intrinsic worth is based on nothing, you're here by a mere accident. There's no moral code. What's right for me is not necessarily right for you. Who cares? Why are we tearing down those monuments? Why should it even offend anybody? Does that make sense? Do you, do you see how the logical conclusion of atheism taking to its point is self-contradictory, or it leads to a world that is just full of atrocities and chaos. and chaos. 
But think about it. Why would it be wrong to own another human being? Why is slavery wrong if atheism is true? Can anyone give me a valid answer to that? I don't think that they can. The only reason why slavery is wrong, why it's wrong to enslave and own another human being, because that human being has an intrinsic self-worth given to him or her by their creator. Period. That's why it's wrong. If you don't believe in a creator, who cares? Does that make sense? So, like I said, a presuppositional approach, approach like mine depends on one thing. Logic. Have any of you had any conversations with folks recently in today's day and age? There is no logic to be had in a lot of these conversations. And it's driving me nuts. I'm going to be honest. It, it's literally driving me crazy because I'm having conversations with people where I can't even... I mean, I might as well just during the middle of their conversation just yell out, potato, unicorn. There's nothing that even happens here, right, with, with logic. Those of us that are somewhat old school, we can say, if A is true, then B is true, then C is true. We can gradually walk out this course of where this conversation should go if you were just flowing it naturally. But now, I mean, golly, it's, it's absolutely all over. And you have that difficult time of going back, like I was saying, like with atheism, of proving that if you took your atheistic worldview to its logical conclusion, you're either self-contradictory, that you can't make the claims that you can make, like those that are making we should tear down these statues as monuments of slavery, you can't make that claim as an atheist. You don't believe in self-worth. Do you get that? Right? It shouldn't matter to you. So, how do we end up doing that? How do we end up in this world of no logic, no reason, no sense? Well, I believe in two things on this, that we can somehow make better headway. I believe it's extremely important to try and get people to think about the implications of the views that they hold to. It's extremely important. Let's touch on another sensitive subject, and it is happening today. Um, I can't remember the exact timeline, but does anyone remember how many years ago when legalized same-sex marriage was the hot topic of debate? Eight, nine years ago, something along that lines? Ten, maybe? 2001, somewhere around there? Okay. So, using this presuppositional view, I went down where that logical conclusion should lead to, right? Here's the deal. They are not arguing for the marriage of same-sex couples. What is the root that they're arguing of? That love is defined on how you want to define it, right? That's the basis for that argument. Okay, let's take that one down to its logical conclusion. There are some extremely perverse and horrific ways in which humans have in the past and continue to define love, the word love. And I had said nine, ten years ago, whenever that happened, that this is going to lead to the um, glorification, legalization, pedophilia. Because how are you now wrong to define a 40-year-old man wanting to marry a six-year-old girl? That's his version of love. How is that not discriminatory? Right? Guess what? We're seeing it right now. Because you're using a rubber ruler to try and define the terms. 
That's outside the rules of logic. If you're defining love as whatever you want to define it as, well, there you go, right? The benefit here um, about having people, and I have had it happen a couple of times, to realize the consequences of their ideas, sometimes they will stop in their tracks. I'm not going to say that they're going to be like, okay, great, I want to be a follower of Christ, but at least they will understand, huh, I guess that is a pretty narrow or just crazy path that my mind is leading me to, and I can see where you're coming from for those logical people. What's the other thing that I believe in too? Well, as far as the second part, I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, 100%. As much as this world absolutely pains me right now to see what it is that we are seeing, I don't believe that God is out of control of it. Does that make sense? And it's a hard concept to grasp, by the way. And it's the hardest concept to grasp for the atheist. And it creates the very first problem. We'll deal with that later on, too. It's called the problem of good and evil. The argument kind of goes something like this. If God is good, he would not want evil to exist. If God is all-powerful, he would not allow evil to exist. Yet evil exists. Either God is not good or not all-powerful, or God does not exist. And that's been, that's been a very valid argument for centuries. And we'll be dealing with that one, too. So you can see where an atheist starts to come from, where their worldview begins. Uh, let's see, let me go back to another point here. So when I was talking about atheists, and they have this idea or this claim that there is no God, let's back this up again about the atheist worldview. You can understand how fleshing out someone's worldview for them, because a lot of times, let's be honest, um, especially today, folks don't really think for themselves. Um, they, they just kind of regurgitate what they may have heard off of social media, off of TV, um, books, whatever. It's, it's quite funny, especially in the Western culture. Does anyone know what the word muse means? To think. The word muse means to think. And in English, if you put a in front of a word, it literally negates the word. So a muse means to literally not think. We have parks dedicated to spending thousands of dollars to go and not think. See the problem with our culture yet? <laughs> okay, we have issues here. So let's deal with the atheist about claiming that there is no God. So if you made the claim, there is no gold in Alaska, what facts would you have to know? Well, you'd have to know the exact borders of Alaska down to the you know, hundredth of an inch, the exact depth of Alaska, you would also have to physically dig up literally every square inch of dirt in Alaska to make that claim there is no gold in Alaska. Because if you left one square inch undug at that point, that could be the section that contained the gold. You just want to know. However, if you make the claim there is gold in Alaska, what would you need? Gold. Yep, just one sliver or piece of it found somewhere in Alaska. Then you can make the claim that there is gold in Alaska. Do you guys get where I'm going with this? So the idea to claim that there is no God, what do you need to know? Everything, at all times, everywhere. That's, that's impossible. 
That in and of itself, guys, is not a fact. It's not an argument proving the existence of God. But it is showing somebody how irrational their logic or their train of thinking is going to lead them to go down. That it won't be possible for them to defend that tenet because they don't have the capability of knowing all facts in all times and in all places. But if I make the claim, just like with the Golden Alaska, there is a God, if I have one positive claim, or at least one that really holds water, one that can make sense, one that can, that can float, I can, I can viably make that claim, right? Just like with the Golden Alaska. If I find one piece of Golden Alaska, I can make the claim there's Golden Alaska. I found it there. Here it is. Yet, then we get into the other argument. Well, if you make a claim that there is a God, produce him for me. I haven't seen him. Well, to be fair, that's true. However, to be unfair, what about the other side? You make the claim of evolution. Were you there? Billions of years ago or millions of years ago? It's not part of the scientific process. The scientific process is repeatable um, scientific results that can be measured and recorded. It hasn't been. So let's move it up in scale. So where in all of this, and the whole point comes down to, why does it even matter, right? Is belief in God, that Jesus is the Son of God, or the Bible, the Word of God, an irrational leap in the dark as many non-believers maintain? Or is there enough evidence to make faith a leap into the direction set by light? It really boils down to this, does God exist? Well, does he? That's the whole point why we're here, why we're even beginning this class. Does God exist? The give, and like I said, with the atheist, the difficulty of holding on to that universal negative that God doesn't exist is beyond what they can imagine of trying to prove that point. It's not possible. Let's see. So what is the most basic argument when it comes to the existence of God? Put simply, who made God? You guys ever have your little kids or grandkids ask you that question? When you're talking about God, well, where did God come from? Have you guys ever been asked that question? I have. The answer goes kind of something like this. If something exists now, then something has always existed unless something comes from nothing. That's something that has always existed is most likely the universe or the one that has created the universe. If you can lim eliminate the universe as the thing which has always existed, we did in past classes, but we'll do it again, you're left with the one that has created the universe. So let's un unpack it a little bit more. The first thing, something exists now. Now we skip over this point, and I feel I did a disservice to you all the first part of this class because I think we skipped over it far too quickly in the first part of this class. This is actually one of the most profound truths. Something exists now. Think, let's think about this. Let's break our brains for a bit. Why? Why does something exist? Why rather nothing? Wouldn't it be easier? Why does something exist? Do you see where I'm getting with this? I mean, if you, if you just 
If we just ruminate on this, and I would like some, some feedback on this, just throw out any answer. Why? Why does something exist rather than nothing? For what was that? For every reason I want it to exist. For every reason you want it to exist. Okay. Any other ideas? Why? Why does anything exist at all? Somebody created it. Yeah. Somebody created it. Why rather nothing? We'll get into the nothingness, too. We've all heard of the philosopher Rene Descartes, right? His famous line, I think, therefore I am. Even I made fun of the guy in college. I'm like, yeah, what a crackpot. Of course you're there, man. I mean, listen, you're smoking banana peels and you're on the lunatic fringe thinking that, hey, you know, maybe we just think we're here. No, yeah, we're actually here. I get it. But in reading Descartes and unpacking why he got to that idea, it's pretty cool. He kept working back in his doubts as far as he could, doubting things. He was working on the creation of the universe that it was actually created by evil demons. And, there was, and it was nothing more than an illusion, the actual universe. Creation was absolutely nothing more than an illusion. He then came to the conclusion when he's thinking, well, all this is just an illusion. Wait, I'm thinking about this. If this is an illusion, then there must be someone to be deceived to have an illusion, right? I'm here. I'm thinking about this. Even the mere claim that I am seeing an illusion means that I'm here because I am being deceived by this illusion. Then he started working forward from there. Does that make sense? If I'm the one deceived and I exist, once he found out that he did exist, then his writings, well, at least in my mind, started to make sense. So the greatest problem that the New Age movement has yet to overcome now figure, the New Age movement says what? It's basically the matrix, right? That we're all just kind of think that we're here. But just like Descartes found out hundreds of years ago, if all of this is an illusion, you cannot have an illusion without someone being deceived by it. That's the whole point, right? So the New Age movement has yet to answer this very, very difficult question. If the world is an illusion, it is an illusion to whom? Who's being deceived by it? It's very difficult to even state the New Age perspective without involving yourself in a contradiction. You just can't do it. Have you guys met any of those folks yet, the New Agers? Yeah? Okay, good. So, if something exists now, then something has either always existed unless something comes from nothing. Okay? So this is the, the part of my degrees. It's in philosophy, so my mind works a little different. <laughs> I think weird thoughts about stuff. So um, I, I want to get you guys to kind of understand. Um, Roger said one of these days, we'll get a whiteboard here, to understand nothing. Okay? Have you guys heard of Francis Schaeffer? Okay. He had a great analogy that I'm going to steal at this point. And it's almost impossible to even talk about nothing. Well, well, why? Well, think about it. When we're talking about nothing or nothingness, it then becomes a something, right? Does that make sense? Because we're now talking about this thing that we're describing as nothing. So what does it look like? Well, if I had a whiteboard, I would draw this big circle on the whiteboard. Picture a circle. Well, actually, we can do a little bit better than that. Picture the TV, because the TV's off, is it? Yes. The square of this TV. And this black represents nothingness inside of the TV. There's a problem. 
the nothingness is contained by the borders of this TV. It's still contained by something, right? All right, well, let's erase the borders of the TV. And then we have, as Francis Schaeffer called it, nothing nothingness. Can your mind even go there? You can't, right? Because the more you try and think about this and try and think about this absolute nothingness, it, it becomes an actual something in your mind. You can't get away from it. There has to be something. Because you are sitting here, you're physical, you're something, you're thinking about it. You can't comprehend the idea of nothingness. It has to be contained by something. It's not, it's not a viable philosophical construct that we can even wrap our minds around it. Again, to be fair, just because we can't wrap our minds around it, is that a valid argument that nothingness can't exist? No, it's not. But I am showing how extremely difficult, if you hold that worldview, is to prove and where your logical line of thinking has to go. Okay, still follow me on this whole nothingness? Okay. So there's really only three options for the origin of the universe. Nothing. Well, we've seen how well that works out. The impersonal or the personal. Now, what do I mean by the impersonal? Well, the impersonal is either the universe has always existed. It's always been a thing. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't work scientifically, and it certainly doesn't work philosophically. Why doesn't it work philosophically? Let's deal with that one first. Can we picture the universe in which we are created beings as always being, never having an origin? It, it, it just falls apart in and of itself. The modern theories postulate that there's this idea that we have an infinite cause of finite causes, just little explosions of stuff that just continued out in, in infinity. Well, let's go over how absurd infinity is. What's infinity minus infinity? Yeah. How, how does that work mathematically? How, <laughs> right? That's not, that doesn't even fit. Right? Or it can't be zero. Because if infinity is a thing minus its thing, then it negates itself out, and it also can't be infinity. So there, there's really no logical reason to this. Let's deal with the scientific thing, scientific evidence that the universe has always existed. Well, I think anyone with higher than a third grade education can take a look around and say, I don't think so. I don't think the universe has always existed. Doesn't it look like this thing is running out of gas? Right? Something is happening. Why? Why is something happening? We get back to that point rather than absolute nothing. Why is there anything rather than nothing? How is it possible that the universe itself has always existed? It doesn't fit. Again, these are not, you know, aha, smoking gun evidences for the existence of God. What these are meant to do in the foundation of this class is so when you engage with those folks, if you can see, so seeds of doubt in their, their logic, in their reasoning, if they can just have this, huh, I guess that doesn't fit idea, then I think the following conversations with that person is going to be a lot more fruitful, right? Because they're going to be open. They're going to, they're going to understand or at least have these ideas of what that means and where their, their ideas are taking them. So, however... We're not going to end it there, folks. We're not going to say, aha, great. 
Your worldview is stupid. Have a nice life and walk away. <laughs> That's horrible. Why would you do that to somebody? Okay. Now figure, they had this idea. They were putting their hope, and you've shown them through just asking questions about their worldviews that their hope is actually a hope in nothingness, which is just complete despair. And you can't leave it there. You can't say, well, you've hoped in absolute nothing and despair and good luck with that. I hope you have a nice life. Then we can be on the proactive side of Christianity. We can say, I believe that there is another explanation. There is another reason or there is another idea as far as why you're here or what life should mean to you. Are you open to that idea? Some say yes, some say no. Does that make sense? And then we begin to, to flesh out the, the ideas of, of Christianity. Um, okay. We also went over certain... Again, this is difficult because of today's day and age. At the first part of this class, we went over certain logical fallacies that you will run across. And they only work in pointing those out if someone is obeying the laws of logic. Now, I'm open to ideas and suggestions here because if you're having those conversations where, I mean, I might as well just explain astrophysics to my pet cat, Binks, at that point, he might get it better than this conversation that I'm having with this individual. What do you do at that point? Really? I, I mean... Honestly, what can you possibly do when you're trying to have a logical, productive conversation and it's just absolutely going nowhere? Nothing. You can't. And that's what God taught me all those years ago. You can't. You don't have the authority to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. And if you're that good, there's someone better than you that can argue them out of it. Right? So what do you do? Exactly what Paul and the rest of the apostles did. You preach the gospel... And that's that. God does the saving. But we absolutely have to preach the gospel. And we'll be dealing with that too. What is the gospel? What is it? In our, um, Blake has started an awesome thing in, in the college uh, group where, does, is he still doing that? Where he has everyone? Okay, good. So he has once a week, everyone share their, or one person share their testimony and one person share how they preach the gospel to somebody. And that's awesome because it gives us a chance to practice it. Um, way of the master. What's his name? If you didn't ask me, I would remember. <laughs> Come on, guys. The way of the master. Because I still his. Uh, Ray thank Comfort. you. Ray Comfort. Yes. Because I still his methods all the time because it works beautifully. That's my personal approach in, in sharing the gospel. Okay. I don't start out with all the evolution and all the science and all the astrophysics and everything else unless I'm you know, dealing with an astrophysicist on college campus, then yeah, that's a common ground. But you have to find a point where you just share the gospel. What does that look like? So I would love some stories. Tell, someone tell me a story of the last time you shared the gospel, successful or not. And I'll tell you some of my best and worst. <laughs> okay. And he, he is, that's, I took the note because he says, you know, if God is so, 
if God's so good, why do children have cancer? Uh -huh. And I tell him that God gave us a perfect world, and God gave us a set of instructions to keep it perfect. And what's the first thing man did? The first thing man did was sin. And because of man's sin, that is why children are sick. Right. That is why we have cancer. And he says, well, God's more powerful. God could have fixed that. Mm -hmm. And then that's about when he starts shutting me out. Sure. I get frustrated because I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I agree with you. I wish God would just fix it. But, you know, God has a reason for not we fixing it. We do, um, and that's the best answer that we can give, right? I'm the same boat, yes, with that, that argument. And I used to have the same one, that if God is so good, then why does evil exist? Until I finally reverse-engineered that argument, my own atheistic argument. How can I call something evil without good to compare it to? I can say I prefer this doesn't happen, but forgive me for a moment, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis, he literally says, to hell with your feelings. Isn't he right? I believe he is. Right? Because if I can call something evil, I have to have an absolute good that I'm comparing it to. Otherwise, I just say, I prefer you don't punch me in the face. And someone punches me in the face. I prefer you don't, and they do it again. I prefer you don't, and they do it again. And there's nothing to stop them. It's just my preference at this point. And who cares about my feelings at that point, Right? And that's very good because it's, it's extremely difficult, especially when it comes to our loved ones and our kids, right, that are, have been raised or have been exposed and, and are in this um, clutches, I guess. And never forget, I haven't, I'm going to, forgive me, I'm going to dig through my notes a bit because this was this was pretty powerful in realizing where that argument actually comes from. And it wasn't from me and from my um, musings here. Okay. Someone wanted to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, and please read it out loud. Yeah, 226, 2 Timothy 226. Then will then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Okay. Do you guys get the point of that verse? So the all of those, including our sons and daughters, our parents, our loved ones that are completely opposed to Christ and all things Christ, it is not them. It's Satan standing behind them. They are enslaved. They are ensnared. They are controlled. So what does that mean when we have those conversations with folks? Do you guys get angry? I do. Do you guys get just really riled up because the things that they're saying are so horrible and it doesn't even fit or make any sense? I do. But we have to remember that it is not them that is saying these things is not them that is doing these things is not them that is the enemy it is the one that is literally standing behind them and snaring them and enslaving them yeah blinders 
it puts a new perspective on it, doesn't it? As far as when we're dealing with these people. So what should be our, I know I'm, I'm here teaching a class on apologetics, but what should be our, our primary weapon in dealing with these folks? Yeah, prayer, 100%, absolutely. Because you are not dealing with flesh and blood. You're not. These people are ensnared and enslaved by Satan, period. And they are not the enemy. It's the one standing behind them that's the enemy. Does it make sense? Does anyone have a successful witnessing story? <laughs> Justin, your witnessing story is sitting right here. <laughs> Do you want to share it, or is that okay? Well, I think that that was just over time. Yep. months later after he quit working where I work, um, he just walked in the door of church and I was like, he's like, I'm here, where do you want me to go? And I told him to go to Michael Stone's class over there. Uh -huh. There's one place where I knew that he would give good teaching. So that's how that worked. But it, was, it wasn't just one conversation. It was right. several conversations. Right. And that's, that's what I found in my own life as well. I've never had those experiences where I just, you know, run by preaching or straight witness to somebody and automatically like, yeah, I want to be saved. I want to, you know, reject all of my sin and follow Christ right now. That has never happened to me. I'm not saying that it can't happen. It obviously did. I mean, look at the apostles, right? Thousands of people got saved if they're preaching. But it's through those conversations, it's through that continued ministry through that continued witnessing that these people may or may not come to Christ. Again, that authority doesn't hold with us, right? I want to be very, very clear as we're sharing the gospel, even over years, it may or may not come to fruition. One of the greatest stories of ever of anyone getting saved over um, years is the Kuykendall's great-grandpa. Great-grandpa, right? I think it... Or grandpa, either grandpa or great grandpa. He was like 95 when 99. he 99. Sorry, he was 99 years old when he finally got saved. The family had been praying and witnessing to him for over 70 years, and then he finally accepted Christ at age 99. I mean, hallelujah! That's one of the most amazing testimonies I've ever heard. So, as promised, I said I would share a couple of mine. Um, the one that stands out most, my wife's heard this one a lot, it was after 9-11, the actual 9-11 in 2001. Um, I, was, I was living in California at the time, and I was flying up here to Washington to come visit my sister. And if you guys can remember, right after 9-11, um, security in the airports was insane, right? It was tough. I mean, you had guards with, you know, M16s, fully loaded magazines, locked, ready to go, you know, cruising around the airport. It was, it was something. It was otherworldly, not what we were used to seeing. So I'm on Alaska Airlines. I'm on the window seat. There's this lady in the middle, and I'm reading my Bible, and the Spirit's just yelling at me to witness of this woman. Share me with her. No. It's going to be awkward. Tell her about Christ. No. I don't want to do that. Just talk to her. All right. Do it. <laughs> so here, 
I begin to share the gospel, right, with this lady that's reading her newspaper two and a half inches away from me on a two and a half hour flight from Ontario, California to Seattle, Washington. What's her response? Pretty much, it's sailor mixed with trucker mixed with construction worker. And just says, can't you just leave me alone and let me read my paper? Okay. So, what was my prayer at that point? Why, God, why did you tell me to share the gospel with her at the end of the flight? <laughs> Rather than the beginning. That would have been awesome. Because then I could have just got up and left. <laughs> no, I had to do it right before we even taxied to take off. It's great. So what's the point of that story? I don't know. The point is... Not all of our endeavors are going to be super, super fruitful. I I was in the midst of it. I was in my apologetics courses. I was being taught by J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Craig Hazen. Josh McDowell was even a guest lecturer at Biola when I was there. So I had all the answers, except for that one. But here's the deal. Did that woman get saved from my efforts? Well, absolutely not. That's, That's obvious. Did she get saved later on? I don't know. But the cool part is, I trust in the sovereignty of God. Amen. So there was some reason why that flight had to suck for two and a half hours and be horrifically uncomfortable. Well, it could have just been a symbol of or obedience. Uh, obedience. Exactly. God was testing your obedience. Right. Which I like to think of that answer. <laughs> because that's one of the few times when I've actually obeyed. And, and obeyed quickly, you know, rather than having to be drugged through the, the mud to obey at that point. Um, have I had any successful witnessing sto- or stories? Yes, um, but it was weird. In college, I was preaching a revival in Northern California, and I was in the book of Acts, um, and, you know, going through Paul and... Uh, on the Mount of Olives and, and his famous sermon, sermon there. And at the end of it, this young gal literally just comes running up, like just tears streaming down her face. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I'm like, um, I don't know. Right? I mean, you know, it's just, you're, you're so taken aback. You don't even have a clue what to do. Um, but you know, praise God, you know, reason um, prevailed at that point, and I, I caught my, my senses and was able to pray with her and, you know, uh, make sure she got plugged into the church after we left so she can be properly discipled, because sometimes the Word of God, and that's the point with these two stories, the Word of God is what we hold our faith in. We don't hold our faith in our own logical arguments. We don't hold our faith in our education. We don't hold our faith in the answers that we can give to somebody because we're going to fail, Right? Those answers aren't going to be good enough. They won't be. They don't have the power to save our loved ones. They absolutely don't. Again, I ask the question, then why are we here? Why do we even bother to study this stuff? Because one, it definitely opens up that door to have those conversations and to have those relationships built. And more importantly, I think it builds our faith and it makes our witnessing so much more impactful. Because think about it. If you're going to go talk to somebody, you're going to talk to your grandkids or your kids, and this isn't something that you believe to be true. It's something that you know to be true. You don't believe 2 plus 2 equals 4. You absolutely know it. Why? 
because you've seen two things and two things, and now you have four things, right? And it's the same way that apologetics can help strengthen our faith. It's not, it doesn't become something we believe to be true at that point. It becomes something that you absolutely know to be true. And that's the most powerful uh, effect. At least it was for me, especially with my own salvation, because the way I work, you have to get through here first to get to here. That's just me. It's the way I'm wired. Might be a guy thing. I think it's a common guy thing, probably. Um, oh, yeah, we're, we're on time. Time to, to let out here. So besides my ramblings, does anyone have any questions or thoughts? No? We, we totally answered the existence of God today? It's awesome. <laughs> well, it keeps coming through. The more you read the Bible, the more you study, the more you know how thorough this is. Look how much proof over, I know. over, over. It's just, it just proves itself. Oh, I know. It, it absolutely does. Yeah. You can't tell that to somebody that doesn't know. They have to experience it themselves. Yep. But once you have the Lord inside you, it's just like, see all this? You didn't know that was there, did you? <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yes. What about the times that you really feel like God is leading you to do something, uh-huh. and you go ahead and do it, and it's just a catastrophe? Yeah, like me witnessing to that woman on the airplane? Yeah. yeah. I just, I was obedient. So it's God's problem at that point, right? Like I, I did so, what he asked me to do. So then how do we discern when... Um, like if we're deluding ourselves and we're ah. applying our wants okay. to God's will, when really okay. this isn't God's will, but somehow we've got it confused in our mind that, oh, this must be what God wants me to do. Great question. Yeah, I, no, I'm totally with you. So at that point, we need to go with both of our answers here. The first thing is, is we need to completely immerse ourselves in the Word of God as much as we possibly can, you know, throughout daily living, because we have jobs and kids and things to do. And then, then how do we know God's will? Well, we know it by His Word. Um, am I expecting Charlton Heston's voice to come out of the heavens and say, you know, thus, here it is, Sean, this is what my will is for you? No, I, I'm not. But I know 100% certain things that is always God's will. Is it always God's will that I share the gospel? Yep. How do I know that? It was the command. It was the last command, actually, that he gave before he left the earth. I 100% know. Whatever situation I'm in, if I'm being felt led to share the gospel, yep, that's God's will. I know it. Is it God's will that I compromise my faith to share the gospel with someone that might make me more relevant to them? Like, should I start cursing if I'm sharing it with a trucker? No. That's not God's will. Does that make sense? Does that, does that kind of help answer that question? Was that where you were getting at? Yes. Kind of. Yeah, kind of? Okay. Things that I've done with my children that I thought God's, that was God's will uh-huh. to do with them, and then I found out that, no, it was not. It was, you know, I was trying to be the best parent I could be, Sure. but that was a mistake. Like certain biblical teachings or classes or stuff like that? One example was... We put my son in Boy Scouts, uh-huh. and he learned so many terrible things in Boy Scouts, it was just unbelievable. Uh-huh. But we had thought that we were doing something really good, putting him in Boy Scouts, and then later we looked back on it, and that was just a horrible downfall in so many aspects of his life. 
This is the atheist son. No, this okay. is the son that now he believes in God, but he is he he wants us to call him Candace now. So okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, and it's just like things started going horribly wrong, and you know I can look back and I can see it it's at that point. But we thought that we were doing good. Sure. To do this, you know, and so we thought we were following God's will, but. In retrospect, I look back and I think, well, maybe that wasn't God's will. Or right, and, and and I'm with you on that. And we've all made those mistakes. You know, we're like, gosh, I, I did this one thing, totally thought I was in God's will, and it ended up to be a catastrophe. Well, then I go back to my original point: Is God still sovereign? I believe that He is. I absolutely believe it that He is. So the screw ups that I make is that going to thwart God's will? I don't think it's going to. I think His will is going to be accomplished regardless especially when it comes to salvation of folks. Um, you guys may not know personally, but our missionaries in Kenya, um, Aaron and Dama Strobach. Aaron, number one, he's in Kenya, and he glows. The dude is so white. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, you can't not miss him, even in America, let alone Kenya, okay? But Aaron has these amazing stories. He'll just be walking along the beach, and he'll have Muslims running up to him whom he has never seen nor met before and say, I had this dream to come find you, whatever they call a white person there, to tell me about your Jesus. So that even further strengthens my belief in the sovereignty of God because without Aaron even meeting or preaching to this person, God was like, here you go. <laughs> right? We cannot usurp God's authority. No, we can't. And that's I mean, reassuring. absolutely, reassuring. there's nothing we can do outside of his will. He will cause his will to happen regardless if we mess up or not. And we, we've messed up on our kids too. Oh yeah. And, and the idea, so remember the whole point at the beginning of this class I was talking about, if we take our, these ideas to their logical conclusions, if we can usurp God's authority, where does that idea lead to? Right. Oh my gosh. That leads to a God that's constantly changing his mind. That leads to a God whose will is dependent upon mine. Right. What do I know about my will? I know what Jeremiah tells me. The heart is desperately deceitful and wicked above all things. I know that about me. Do I want that in my creator? No. Absolutely not. And we do take comfort in that. Whatever catastrophes we may have done, I know that God's will will be carried out. But here's the difference. We only think of God's will as something turning out good, at least in our mind, yeah. right? What is God's ultimate will? That he'll be glorified. That he'll be glorified. Does God always have to be glorified in what we think is a good event? No. Think about Judas. Was God glorified in the destruction of Judas? Yes. Was Judas created for that very purpose? Yes, he was literally named the son of perdition, the one created to burn, right? Was God glorified in Pharaoh hardening, or in, in uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Yes, he was glorified in that. See, I'm, it's, not a difficult, it's not an easy concept. We have to preach at Juby. And I have to preach at Juby. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's, it's not an easy concept to, to get this idea in our mind that the glorification of God is his ultimate will, not 
Sean Kirk being happy and never having any trials. That's not an easy concept. But thanks, guys. Um, I'm going to close us in prayer. And where's that? There's the recorder. And we'll usually go till 1230. Yeah, um, but we have but to preach at Juvie, so we have to go get snacks and all that stuff for the kids. Just so. this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me close us in prayer. Father, uh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you so much for everything that you have given us. Uh, we thank you for your word and our time together. And we just ask that you would continually build not only our faith, um, but work on those whom we love, Lord, that have not yet come to salvation. Uh, Lord, we just ask and we beg you that you would see fit to save them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.